0: Um, well, I wanted to just tell you really quick as I start the, the message. Jerry's been reminded me. We've talked about it. For us, it seems like a lot, but not all, not that often on a Sunday morning. So just to make sure you're all kind of aware of what our life looks like and our summer looks like. Back in the beginning of May, we shared with you and the church um, this decision to take a, a sabbatical um, for for myself, and um, that's going to start here and just just about three weeks. July 9th is the first Sunday. Off, and we'll go two months, and I'll be back speaking on, on, on September 10th. Of course, we have great, all of our pastors on staff and others that will be speaking throughout the summer, and you'll be thoroughly enjoying them. But uh, the first thing we do, you heard my parents mention, is we, we got an RV from somebody, and we're going to go travel about 6,000 miles across the United States with our kids, and um, they are pretty excited about it. Uh, we've had it for a couple days, packing it, and I think they would rather just live in it already. Uh, I'm sure I'll have some good sermon illustrations and, uh, and uh, probably some money invested into counseling when we return. And um, but, but once we return, uh, start the sabbatical, then it'll be, um, like I said, the first, uh, first full week of July into the first full week of September. And, um, and I just, I, I want you to know that I really appreciate your support and excitement. This is not just kind of just normal talking points for me. I, I really want you to hear this. I was meeting with the men, my, my coach and kind of mentor through this process who does this for pastors all over the nation with Foursquare. It's what his job is for our denomination is pastoral health, and he leads people through sabbaticals and crises and all different things. And I, I asked him yesterday, or, uh, Thursday, I got together with him for lunch, and, and I said, is it normal to have such just consistent support from a church? And you know, and, and he says there's some churches that do, but but most do not. And and here's where you even go a step above. It's not only that many of you have said like, Oh, I'm I'm you know, I'm glad you're able to go or we, we support you in this, but the word excitement I, I picked up on this has been used multiple dozens of times in your conversation with me over the last month or so. And that, that's significant for me. I, I was telling Larry, I said, people keep telling me they're excited for me and the opportunity I will have to hear from God, to get away with Him, to spend time with my family. And I, I think that just speaks so highly of you as a church. And I, I wanted you to know that. It's, it's not even just well, yeah, I mean, you've had a lot going on and we're glad you get some rest. I think you you really, as a church, have picked up on the importance of this and so I pray that it's reciprocated to you as well, that as you find time this summer and you take moments away, that you hear from God and He speaks to you and that you also know that we all benefit together, the healthier internally we are um, together is, is better together. And so I just think it's highly unusual and I just wanna tell you I'm so grateful and so thankful. I'm not concerned one bit um, about being gone and that's really the honest uh, truth. And we have such a great staff, you know them, they do such a fantastic job. We. We we talked last week just how God is orchestrating all of this, even while we're building a building and and a plant is happening and and, um, there's there's other ministries that are needing oversight, how God is just totally, he just puts all the pieces into place. I'm so grateful for that. So, I know the staff is going to do a phenomenal job. I'm not concerned about that. Believe me, the building, um, you'll you'll want to check it out. Um, They start the outside framing a week from tomorrow. I mean, there's going to see some great progress. We're still aiming to be in by December. And there's a gentleman in our church named Thor um, who was a project manager over high rise projects his whole life. He was the project manager if you haven't heard me tell you this before, for the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, which budget was $750 million. Uh, he told me when he volunteered, he goes to all the meetings, he basically leads the building project from our, our side, which aren't you glad he's doing it and not me? But, I mean, be thankful. Uh, and he told me he spent more on outlets than we are on our building, and he wasn't kidding um, when, he, when he said, I'll, I'll be able to handle it. So you just know that, I mean, all of those things just show the sovereignty and the power of God and how he works out things. And that's not just for us, that's true for each of you each of your lives. So grateful for that. Um, Also wanted to say, I won't be checking email. The staff is going to be checking my email. They'll let me know if something comes through that I need, but they're going to take care of that. Oftentimes, my my phone will be off, and uh, that'll be a nice thing. Um, But I'm also not sick. You can't catch a sabbatical, though that'd probably be good. Um, But I've had so many people already see me, and they're like, from a distance, if I see the summer, can I come and say hi? Uh, no, you won't ruin the whole thing if I see you. You don't have to run and hide. Um, I will be home almost the entire summer. Uh, Jerry will still can be continuing to come here. The kids are in school, and um, I'm just going to sequester myself when I'm not with them um, and just being being quiet and, um, and taking some time just to really think. God gave me that image of halftime uh, several months ago, and that's what I keep writing on that that you know, at halftime you go in, you rest, you replenish, you don't keep going. They, they give football teams a halftime so they can rest. It saves injuries, uh, it helps you catch your breath, but then you also re-strategize, and I think God is gonna do both of those things in my life this summer, and so I'm excited to come back and share it with you. so But thank you again so appreciate all of your support. So, I want to look here just this last week from me um, in this series on Soul Keeper, looking at this book and and kind of breaking it out into some sermons, Soul Keeping, Um, and uh, we've called it Soul Keeper. And, you know, talking about a sabbatical, there's a lot of different professions of people who take sabbaticals, and maybe the one that you're most most familiar with or most frequent um, you hear about is, is uh, people in higher academia and colleges. They often take, take sabbaticals, it kind of depends on the college, depends on, on their, their area of study, but they may take one between four and seven years. And there's two things that oftentimes take place if a professor is taking a sabbatical. One, it gives them an opportunity for a semester or a year to really refresh themselves in their area, their subject of study, to learn and know what the new things are in the field. You don't want someone teaching you Um, about some some element of science or math that was was cutting edge especially if it's technology cutting edge 25 years ago do you you want them to have time to freshen up and know what the latest things are to learn what's new and so uh, professors will take time periodically to do that but then the second thing is a lot of times in research colleges they go away they go study and they go research to write a book or to to publish something or to dig deeper into a topic and, and the thing is, is we can even think of sabbatical that way, but that's truly not what I'm aiming for, not where the word typically comes from. In the Bible, it is a biblical word where we get this concept sabbatical, comes from the, the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is their, their Sabbath, and, and that word simply in the Hebrew means to cease, to, to end, to stop. In this context with Sabbath, it means to cease from work. And so one of the hardest things that I'm going to do, and you know how this feels, is, is not trying to use this time to catch up, Um, to do all the things that I've been wanting to do uh, the last six months. Because you're probably like me, you get a day off, you're like, no, I don't want to do anything Saturday or Friday, let's like keep it clear. And then instead of resting all day or maybe spending time with your family, you get caught up on all the projects. Are you with me? And um, and that's not what a Sabbath is, Not, not a sabbatical, not a Sabbath in the biblical sense. It's a time to actually stop and to trust God in all those areas that you're not caught up to realize that they're not more important than a growing relationship with Jesus or a growing relationship with your family or your friends. It's an opportunity to remind yourself of those things, to cease, to cease from work. And God gave several um, um, uh, times in Scripture where He commands or He shares this concept, this idea of of Sabbath. And so I wanna read one to you here in Deuteronomy, chapter five, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of the other animals. Remember this in this agrarian culture, he's basically saying this is not just for you to take a day off and your slaves or your kids or your animals keep working. This is something that Is is supposed to be societal. It's it's a cultural thing. We're all going to stop and remind ourselves. We we don't have those kind of animals. He's not talking about pets. He's talking about nobody else is doing work either, right? And so, no, any foreigner residing in your towns, not even the hired work, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Basically, simply, God has designed you and the world to have a stop day. I, I've read some people that like to call Sabbath stop day, and I like that. I think that's kind of a simple way to think about it. It's, it's a stop day. God, God, God wired us, listen, to stop. He, he wired this world to need breaks. In fact, um, I don't talk about it very much, but that's also why we have small groups the way that we do in our church. Quite frankly, I'm not saying other people do it wrong or they're not biblical, but, but it comes from a conviction of mine that, that there should be stopping points to all that we do, to have times of rest and then re-engage. And so we have groups that happen at seasons and very few groups that go just on forever um, because I, I believe that we have to have breaks. We have to have times to stop. God has just ingrained this. He, he built it into the DNA. We're wired to need To stop. Can you can you imagine if if you never turned off your lawnmower, you never turned off your car? I mean, not only would it just burn gas, but eventually the whole engine would burn up. Do you ever leave for a trip, vacation like we will do, or a trip that you have, and you get a few miles away and you start thinking, oh man did I leave something on? Did we leave the, 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 the curling iron on? Did we leave the heater on, the, you know, the space heater? Did we leave? Do you, you ever leave and get kind of paranoid? Or maybe you're one of those people who are, you're always paranoid and going back, um, but you worry. Why? Because if something's on, even a fan or some sort of appliance, you know, it, it, it turn off the coffee pot or the crock pot or something, If you, you worry that if you leave an appliance on, it's not meant to go on forever and stay like that for a week and the tragedy could, could happen that something catches fire because it just, it burns up. It's supposed to have times where it goes off. I think sometimes God must wonder when He looks down at us, like, like, hey, it's time to unplug. <laughs> like, you're going to burn yourself out. I mean, this, the, the engine of you, your soul, what we've been talking about, is just going to burn up and die. You need, you need a stop day, and God built that into the, into the, the work week um, um, that we know of where, where, hey, we go six days and then we, we take a day of stop, but it, it's not, I don't have time to get into all of it in one sermon, but it's not just even having a day a week that you stop, and wish we had time to get deeper into it, but it's finding times during each day and, and, and a week and during the year, but this biblical principle that God has given us to make sure that we stop. Do you, you know, we're in summer now, it's June. Do you, do you remember what the first day of summer felt like when you got out of school? Some of you, that was just a few years ago. Some of you are still in school and some of you it was a long time ago. But th- don't you think that the first day of summer just has like a feel to it? Especially when you are younger, before you got a job. I mean, I remember just coming home. It was usually a half a day. You didn't do too much in school on that half day and you're signing everybody's yearbooks. You're saying goodbye. And then you just get home and you sit there and you're like, man, there's nothing. Like there's no homework. There's nothing to do. It just, I, I don't know. For me, it just, it had a feel. And I just, the whole summer out ahead of you, just the excitement of that. And truly, that I think God wants us to have a feel for the times that we stop and we rest in Him, where it just feels like, you know what? There's no pressure right now. There, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing hanging over. But the, the God has given us this time of rest. But, but have you experienced that? Oh, I, I really hope that you do. A, a writer wrote recently, what does rest look like? What does a, a stop day look like? And I loved his kind of ways that he described it. He says, rest is stopping from one's work, whatever that work may be. Rest is freedom from harassment, it is the quiet after the storm, it is the children fresh out of the bath with pruned fingers and the smell of baby shampoo, tucked under their blankets before bedtime. Rest is the sound of the night breeze rattling the palms as it comes off the gulf. Rest is putting your head down on the pillow knowing that you can sleep in. Rest is the beast of burden unhitched from the plow, and rest is walking around the edge of the shorn cornfields in the fall. Rest is reading and setting the book aside when your eyes get too heavy. Rest is the sound of wind through the screen porch on on a beach house. Rest is stopping. It is staring up through the thin Colorado night sky at the spine of our galaxy. Rest is thinking about all the things that you could do on a Sunday afternoon and yet hearing a still small voice telling you to stop and then taking a God-ordained nap. (laughs) Just a really kind of nice descriptive way of what does rest look like for you? It's different for all of us. Actually, an old, an old uh, Jewish concept where, where we talk about in Deuteronomy and Exodus and places where it says, remember to keep the Sabbath. Uh, old Jewish saying used to say, actually, we don't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath keeps us. It keeps us in health. It keeps us in peace. It keeps us together. And so we need, we need stop days. We need rest days. We need catch-up days. You, you've all said this, right? The, the phrase, things will slow down when right? What is, what is your favorite, favorite phrase to put there? Things will slow down when I get back to a regular work schedule. Things will slow down when, when I get past this test or this exam or this review. Things will slow down when I finally catch up. Things will slow down when I finish school. Things will slow down when my kids get out of school. Things will slow down when my kids get back into school. Things will slow down this summer. I meant this fall. No, probably winter. I'm hoping for spring. <laughs> It's really easy to kid ourselves, isn't it, that, that for things to slow down requires us to stop, not for a set of circumstances to become perfect. You realize that now, right? You're never going to sit down probably and say, I have literally nothing to do. You're probably, there's, just, there's always going to be something that you can find to do, even if you don't need to do it. In order to actually stop to actually remember and to do what god has asked us to do to have a sabbath it it actually takes us being proactive to say you know what i'm going to cease from everything that i should be doing that's why this whole exercise is an exercise of trust so he said there in deuteronomy and then i want to pick up on this he says remember that you were slaves in egypt and the lord your god brought you out of there with a mighty hand it's interesting that sabbath has a lot to do with remembering where we came from, where they came from, but also us, where we came from, and how God is very different than the way that we lived our lives before God. And so I'm gonna read this to you out of Exodus chapter five um, because this is where the whole concept of of Sabbath comes from, is this reorganization of the Israelite life after leaving um, Egypt. Egypt actually worked on a different calendar calendar than us. Their months were three weeks long, but they were 10 days in each week. Um, But I guarantee you, as the Israelites were there in Egypt and they became slaves and they were doing all their work and making their bricks and building their buildings, they were not given a weekend or a day off. They were working 10 days after 10 days after 10 days, and that was their life in Egypt. So God comes to rescue His people. They're, They're crying out. They're begging God, please, come rescue us, free us from this bondage, this slavery in Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron come, and they speak to Pharaoh. And they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may go hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Can you imagine how sweet a festival sounded like when you haven't had a day off in three years? Think about that. When they haven't had a day off, they're working day and night. I don't, I don't even know how many years. Years upon years upon years without a single day off being driven in slavery, nothing. And God is saying, I want you to come out, I want you to have a party. I mean, yes, sign me up, let's go. And Pharaoh, though, he's not about it. He's got great slave labor going, so him and all of the rich folks in Egypt can sit around and do nothing while other people are doing the work. That was typical in every culture. And so so he says, let my people go so they may hold a festival. Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I shall obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And the king of egypt said moses and aaron why are you talking to the people about their taking them away from their labor get back to work then pharaoh said look the people of the land are so numerous you are stopping them from working and so Pharaoh's going to make it even harder that same day pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people you are no longer to supply them even with the straw for making bricks let them go and gather their own straw it got worse but require them to make the same number of bricks as before don't reduce the quota They are lazy, that is why they keep crying out, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble uh, to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying complete the work required of you each day, just just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelites' overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The things that really jump out to me in this story are all these just really tough and rough words, beaten and driven and work and self-reliant. The word's not in there, but basically they're saying, we used to provide you a straw, now you provide it yourself. You do it yourself. You're on your own, complete the work, meet the quota, 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 produce. Their whole life was about making bricks, making bricks, making bricks. Egypt becomes this analogy in scripture to to not just a country and where where the Israelites were slaves, but it becomes this analogy for all of our lives that Egypt represents what life looks like before God, and God bringing the people of Israel out represents what He wants to do in our lives and bring us to a new land. And these 10 commandments and the law and the Sabbath is all part of that, but but what they were supposed to be reminded of was before God was your God, you had this Pharaoh who just demanded that you work, that you produce, that you meet the quota. And you know the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of Pharaohs in our culture today and they, and they get into our hearts. We, we live our lives instead of just thinking about the people that we're becoming and, 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 and what God wants to do in our lives and who we wanna be with our families and what we get caught up in is meeting the quotas and meeting the quotas and producing. You better make sure that you do this or do that or you'll lose your job or you won't be respected or people won't like you. Or, and it's just this constant pressure that comes from, from these, these pharaohs in our culture. You, you, you need to make more money. You need to drive a nicer car. You, you should have better clothes. Your house should look better. You should keep your house perfect. Your kids should behave better. You, you, you should already have figured this out. You shouldn't be addicted to that. It's just this constant just beating down. Come on produce, produce and we get caught up in this and then we, we also start feeling that self-reliance coming on and, and we no, I don't need help from anybody and we, we try harder and harder to do it ourselves and we don't even realize that we're slaves. We're slaves to a system that will never, never satisfy us and never give us joy. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, I spent a lot of time with counseling but I've also spent a lot of time with myself, about 40 years in fact, and, um, and this is what I know is true, that your boss is not the most difficult Pharaoh that you'll ever face. Your, your, your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad or a, a brother or sister or some people, they're not, they're not the toughest pharaoh that you'll ever face. The toughest pharaoh you'll ever face is the one who sits throned in your own heart. I talk to people all the time that wanna to come to me and say, I wanna give time to my family. I wanna spend time with them, but you don't understand the demands at work. Mm. No, no, you don't understand that there's a little pharaoh inside of you that says, if you don't produce, if you don't bring the bricks, if you don't make it happen, then they're going to pass over you for the raise. They're going to find another person. They're going to fire you. And what are you doing? You're caught up in a system of slavery when Jesus says that you can be free. I love to tell the story. It wasn't in my notes, but I feel like the Lord brought it back to me. Amazing. I, I, Tyler, who is a person here on staff for, for about a year, year and a half, and we, he planted up in York Springs and and um, he's just getting to the point, hopefully here soon, the church is doing well, that he can become a, a full-time pastor there, but he's been bivocational for two, two, three years. He works at UPS at night. He works hard. Um, it takes a lot out of him, but when he got the job, he told him, I'm happy to work here, uh, but I, I can't work on, on the weekends. I can't work on Sundays because I'm a pastor, and they said, sure, so he, he worked, I don't know, six to eight months and got around to the first Christmas season. And the boss sat him down because he was like a supervisor. And he says, hey, we're going to need you, you know, for the next month to work on Saturdays and Sundays. It's Christmas, right? I mean, that's, that's everything in UPS land. And we're going to need you in here. And Tyler was like, oh, maybe you forgot when I got hired. I told you I would not work on Sundays. And they're like, well, maybe you don't understand. We're UPS and Amazon controls us. And uh, we have to get all of our packages to people by Christmas, right? And Tyler said, I, I remember talking with him, said so respectfully and so kindly, he says, well, then you can fire me, but I'll keep showing up to work until you do, but I won't be here on Sundays. You know, the difference is, and I, I'm so proud of Tyler, is you can easily blame your boss. Well, I can't come to church anymore. You see, it's their fault. No, no. But, but ultimately, what you're bowing to is the inner Pharaoh that says, you have to have a job, or you have to have that job, or you have to have your boss's approval, no, it's not just about attending church. It's about when God begins to speak to you and says, you need a time to stop. You need to give time to your family. You need to have a Sabbath. You need to have these things in your life. It is usually the inner, inner Pharaoh in you, not the ones that we like to blame, is the one that is the taskmaster that's driving us. And what it boils down to is simply, and I just tell you this, I tell you this in love because it's true for me and it's true for you. You don't trust God enough. You don't trust him enough. And you know what they did after tyler told him that after christmas is over in january they gave him a race (laughs) had a better position you know why they wanted to keep an employee who was faithful who was honest and who worked hard and at the end of the day most of the time what will happen is your work ethic and your integrity will trump the principles that you have in your life if they know you're a good employee but most of the time we don't get to that place because the inner pharaoh bends its knee first to the God of money, or the God of time, or the God of success, or the God of promotion. And we bend our knee to that pharaoh long before we realize, you know what, I can trust God to take care of this. That's my challenge for you. Um, That's that's true for my life, and I know it's probably true for yours. And so, when you think about the fact that God has hardwired us to stop, to have a day of rest, you, you have to also understand that Sabbath, even though it's part of the Ten Commandments, the Bible describes Sabbath as a gift, as much as it would be a law. And so my my question is, if Sabbath is a gift, have you opened it? Can you imagine how crazy it was? I mean, today's my birthday, but can you imagine how crazy if I had all these presents at home and there's one, like, really great one? This one's great. We put all of our thought and our effort into this one, and I'm like, nah, I'm just not going to open that one. The rest of them are good. And you just left it there. And ultimately, though, I think that God has given us this gift of Sabbath, and truthfully, for most of us, we live our lives with an unopened gift that Jesus has given us. And we leave it unopened because, I said it before, we don't trust Him enough to actually stop and to cease and to to let our lives be connected to God and also be led by our values. Listen, Exodus 16, 29. They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. Talking about right now with the manna that was given. God gave them manna to eat for six days and then on the sixth day, He gave it to them for two days' worth so they wouldn't have to collect on the Sabbath. That's why He gives you two days' supply on the sixth day so there'll be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So that's the trust that you're forced to have whenever you cease from working, that God is gonna provide enough of what you don't do or he'll take care of the things that need to be done that you don't have time for right now. But it's all a matter of trust. And what we get caught in is we totally misunderstand this principle and, and, and if anything, we live like our world, which is really we work to work. I mean, we don't even work to rest. I'll get to that in a minute, but we work to work. Right, I've heard so many people say it in, in, in my life, "You know what? I'll rest when I die." <laughs> well, you'll die soon. Uh, but more than that, but more than that, what are you accomplishing? Work is not the ultimate goal. You need to understand something. You know, our, our ambitions and our accomplishments and these things and even the God, God-given purposes that we have, the work is not the ultimate goal of life, and when that becomes the ultimate goal, we, what we're doing is we're basically making bricks on our own to justify our own existence. Well, I need to build this or I need to have that or, or if this happens or people recognize me, then, 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 then I'm, I have value, I have worth and we work to work. Or the other side is also true is we don't work to rest. That's not the principle that God has done that you work to rest as if you have to earn rest. And most of us, we think of that way. We think of the Sabbath being kind of like at the end of the week and work really hard and then you can take a break and that, that's a different principle because it's not rest is earned. We don't make bricks to earn rest. Rest is not the ultimate goal. Just like work is not the ultimate goal, rest is not the ultimate goal. In, in, in Egyptian culture as well as a lot of ancient cultures, even probably true some today, that when people get to a certain place of wealth or maybe they don't have to work anymore, there's a simple temptation or tendency to just let everybody else work and just sit and rest, and that's what a lot of people did in the ancient world. But listen, the goal is not to get to a place where you can just rest. That's not satisfying either. Go ahead and read the book uh, that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, and he'll tell you, man, I accomplished everything, got everything, and yet I'm still in turmoil on the inside. Ultimately, this is the principle of Sabbath that God wants us to live by, is that we work from rest. We don't work for work. We don't work to rest. We work from rest. Here's something that maybe you've never really thought about or put together, though you know this is true. If you know the creation account in the Bible in Genesis, it says that God took the first six days and, and he, he created the world. Out of nothing, he formed all these things. There's light and then darkness and then the sky and the earth below and water and, and the land. And he starts you know, creating the animals. And he's speaking all this, all this into existence out of nothing. And then he creates Adam and Eve. He creates male and female. He creates humanity, the pinnacle of creation. Because they're made in God's image and they were different than all other created things and they were made to enjoy God and to reflect Him and to honor Him and all that they do. And then what was the first thing they did when they went to bed on day six after they were created? What was day seven? Rest. It was the very first thing they did that ultimately really our calendars ought to be Sabbath is the day of rest, and then from rest, because God says, here's the garden. I did it, I made it, I provided it all for you, and God hasn't changed to this day. I'm the one who'll take care of your needs. I'll, I'm the one who'll supply. I'm the one who will, will do these things in your life. But then from that rest, we don't sit around and go, oh, cool, God, you've got to take care of, I'm not gonna do anything. No, he told Adam and Eve after their day of rest, now go work the ground and make it greater. Make it better. Go work it and enjoy it. But they're not doing it to find their identity or to earn a living or to think this is what I have to do to be okay. They're doing it out of just the overflow that, man, God has done so much for me. I want to take care of what God has done. I I want to cultivate it for others. In fact, if you think about it as laying bricks, Ultimately, if, if we know Jesus and we're following him, the only bricks we lay are the ones that he hands to us and we go out and work hard to lay bricks to create roads and bridges to other people who are serving pharaohs and are dying under hard labor and we invite them, oh, come with me, come with me, come with me to a place, to a God who will give you rest. That's the work that we do, is to, to, to share in the rest that God has given to us with our family and our friends and to invite other people to do it. You don't get tired of that. You don't get tired of that. You, don't, you know, if there's something you love to do, if you love to do gardening or something outside, and you love it, other than maybe getting sore, which happens a lot quicker as you get older. Um, but but you don't. You know, someone may hate gardening. Oh, I can't stand it. But you love gardening. You can be out there all day, and it's like two minutes have gone by because you love it. Your work is coming out of this overflow of what you love, and that's exactly this principle of Sabbath that God says, I want you to have rest, and from that rest. I want you to work from that place of of rest and security that that He has given us, then it sprouts out, and it's not a taskmaster. All right, so listen, accepting Jesus, though, is the ultimate Sabbath, and that's what we now know from Scripture, all the way from the Old Testament to the New, that actually this person of Jesus and what He did for us becomes the true Sabbath rest. Ultimately, because of our sin and our brokenness, you know, um, we… we would have to earn salvation. We would, we, we, we're not worthy in and of ourselves before God, and so we have these, there's these attempts that we make to try to make ourselves worthy, but ultimately, only Jesus can do that by his sacrifice. That's why he tells us in Matthew 11, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? I love Eugene Peterson's version in the message. Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real Rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus becomes this ultimate Sabbath for us because he paid the price. He earned salvation that we could not do on our own. You can look at every other religion, every other philosophy. You have a lot of people, you know, from, from, from Buddha to, I mean, you know, even even Joseph Smith in, 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 um, uh, in Mormonism and all these different religions, you have these people that walked and said, this is the way you're to live. This is the way you're to walk. You look, you look at all these religions, and here comes Jesus. He shows us a way to live, but he does so much more than that. It's very different than all the religions. He says, you can't do this, so I'm gonna die for you. You can't live the perfect life. You can't earn your salvation. He shows us what life is supposed to look like, but he also reveals that we can't do it, which is why the gospel is not what you can do for God or how you can earn something for God, the gospel is good news because it's what God did for you. So Jesus comes and he does all this for us and now he says, now come follow me. And as you follow me, as I've given you grace and forgiveness, I'll give you by my spirit and my spirit will transform you from the inside out that your life can begin to look like what I created it to look like. Nobody else does that. Everybody else says, here, let me show you how to do it. Jesus knew from the very beginning, he's the only real truth, the only real answer. He says, you can't do it, you're not gonna be perfect. You, you know, it's not even just so much that you're, you're trying to make bricks. You, you, you're never, you'll never build anything that'll amount to anything on your own anyway. So let me do it for you and then come enter that rest. I love how he says there, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Um, the, the writer of the book, Soulkeeping, John Ortberg, he was uh, he was told to take a sabbatical. He writes about it in the book. It's great. About page 89, 90. And his elder said, you need to go take a sabbatical and we, we can tell you need it. <laughs> so he says, I drove back to visit his mentor, whose name was Dallas Willard. He said, I, I, I showed up there at his house and I told him I felt frustrated because the people at the church I serve were not changing more. And I asked him what I needed to do to help our church experience greater levels of spiritual growth. I can tell you today, in all honesty, I'm not leaving because I'm frustrated with you. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> but listen, because it, it still applies to, to him, to me, and to you. He says, I wanna know what, what can I do to make this church better? And Dallas Willard says, after a long pause, you must arrange your day so that you're experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And he says, huh? He goes on, no, 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 I corrected him. I'm not talking about me. I need to know what I need to do to these people to make them better and to draw them closer to you. Shouldn't there be a book to read or some kind of prayer program to go through? And Dallas Willard reiterates it again. No, 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 no. He says that if people have, a, have a, a sickness, an immune deficiency, they don't need someone with pneumonia to come take care of them. You go and you spend time with God and find contentment and joy and confidence. And, I, and the reason I share this with you is that's true for me as a pastor and why I'm taking the sabbatical, but you know what's true for you? You want to know how to, how to meet the, the needs and the expectations of your wife or your husband or how to be a better father and mother for your kids, how to how to be better at your place of employment either for your boss or for the people that you're over or for your parents or for your friends or wherever you are in life as, as a single person, as a married person, as a step family. You know, you, know, you, know, you know the secret to really being the person that would be best in that situation is not for someone else to fix themselves or to get themselves right, but for you to find deep contentment and joy and confidence in your everyday life with God. And from that place of peace and contentment with Jesus will flow a spring that will um, help you be the person that God needs you to be. So let me finish with this. Jesus gives you permission to stop. I'm not sure if this is a point or if this is just like my, my ministry time for you, but this was on my heart the last few days. I, I, I've even met some of you recently in the stores and I've been talking with you, and I know, I feel like it too. I mean. But, but I just know that some of you, man, you've just been working, life is just working you. It's not even just so much your job, and maybe your family, you're doing your family on your own, you're a single mom, or maybe you're a step-parent, or you're just, it's tough with a health situation. Just, you just, you, you feel like you're being driven by that taskmaster in Egypt. And I want you to know how it is that Jesus gives you permission to stop. It's not that when you just stop, you cease, you're not doing anything, so nothing's happening. No, when you stop to trust God, something's happening. You're literally building your faith in the Lord, which is gonna help you make better decisions and act better and respond better in the situations you're in. That's why it says in Hebrews four, there then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. It requires faith that you know what, I can stop this because God stopped what he did. He didn't rest on day seven because he was tired. He rested because he put a principle in this world that God is, is orchestrating and taking care of everything. And you know what, when you rest and you stop and you're trusting Jesus, you're doing something, maybe the greatest thing you can do. So let me finish by reading this, this little story from a great book called 24-6, talking about how our, how our world just goes at 24-7 and how we need to make our weeks 24-6. I think you'll like this and I wanna finish with this and pray this over you. This, this man was talking about, he was, a, he was an ER doctor and he eventually met Jesus as an ER doctor and God began to show him what Sabbath rest was. And he said this, talking about a moment when he was a young kid. On the last morning of fourth grade, everyone in my class was given a fountain pen. The, these writing instruments consisted of a plastic body, clear blue or red, with an ink cartridge and a metal cap. The pens represented a rite of passage. We were moving up from thick pencils and smudged newsprint Um, to three-hole-punch notebook paper and cursive writing. During recess that day, I climbed to the top of the jungle gym where the older boys would stand upright on the thin metal pipes and extend their arms into the air in triumph. No boy below fourth grade ever attempted the summit trick. And although I'd done it many times before, I still thought it was a little foolhardy. Nonetheless, once I was on the top, I I put my shoes on two slippery narrow pipes glanced at the hard surface far below and let go with my hands and moved from a crouch to an upright position standing there on the roof of the world with my arms outstretched a thought came to me at that time it seemed logical why not do something while I'm up here (laughs) I look out I looked I took out my fountain pen and decided to disassemble it whether from my lack of oxygen or brains or my nervousness over the precarious height no matter how hard I pulled I could not get the pen apart I could just see him standing there. In desperation, I shook the nib between my teeth and gave it a yank. Success! The thrill of victory, however, was quickly eclipsed by the agony of swallowing a mouthful of ink while the nib, body cap, and empty cartridge went ricocheting towards the earth. Quick as Einstein, my mind turned to the mathematical question that dogged me much of my first two decades of my life. How can I hide this? I was distracted from my calculations by the approach of Mary Sue Layden. She had a quick smile and a large freckled noise, and behind fetching glasses, the most charming, myopic eyes ever to grace a playground. In short, she was the most dazzling creature I could imagine. During square dancing, when the other girls said yuck, she simply took my hand and we dosy doed. I spent countless hours daydreaming of daring ways to rescue her from peril. Always my reward for jumping in front of a bullet just in the nick of time was to die in her graceful arms. Oh, it be in fourth grade. Mary Sue looked up at me, broke into uncontrollable laughter and ran off. I descended from the summit and was seized at base camp by a teacher who marched uh, me toward the school building. If you want to know what defeat tastes like, drink one teaspoon of warm alkali blue ink and add the ridicule of the girl who matters most to you, then top it off with the howls of classmates or even worse, the laughter of kids in lower grades. I had no illusions they were laughing with me. As I walked the long path in the blur of humiliation, the teacher held me at arm's length using my ear as a handle. Well, Mr. Sleeth, he said, torquing my ear a few inches more from its anchoring skull. The school is questioning whether you should be advanced to next year. Being held back a year was the continual threat of my youth. (laughs) The teacher stood me before a mirror and asked if I thought what I saw was funny. In front of me was a child, small for his age, sporting home-cut hair and a Goodwill shirt. He was covered with ink like like a a Rorschach's test. He's big front teeth were outlined in deep purple indigo gums, and I broke into laughter, foaming ink bubbles out of my nose. Of course it's funny. Mary Sue Layden's family moved away that summer, and I never saw her again. My parting image of her is one of otherworldly perfection. Her last glimpse of me was a fourth-grade madman. All right, that night at dinner, my father scolded me about school. I took a sip of my milk and giggled. You think everything is a joke, don't you, he said. You probably think it'd be funny if I dropped dead. And for a millionth of a second, I maintained control, and then I erupted into laughter. My father swatted me and sent me to my room. The second time that day, bluish bubbles formed out of my nose. (laughs) At the beginning of the school year, the five children in the family were promised small rewards for making good grades and keeping out of trouble. I had failed on all accounts, so I was the only one not welcome to the rewards caravan that left our house in the morning. But listen, what would have been the right punishment for breaking a new fountain pen and getting in trouble at school? It certainly wasn't leaving me out of a shopping trip, something I wasn't thrilled about anyway. Leaving me home alone was akin to punishing a child who wouldn't eat his vegetables by making him eat ice cream. So it was on that first, and here's what I want you to catch. So it was on that first day of summer after fourth grade, in the quiet of June in farm country, I strolled across the grass toward the barn. The air was calm and soft. All worries of failure in school had vanished from the earth, and it was quiet and bright as the air above clouds one key element of happiness is contentment and one of the foundations of contentment is optimism and i was happy content and optimistic all of summer stretched out before me a vast unexplored adventure in my arms i held a package for my uncle who had given me several he had given me several weeks before on the brown wrapping uncle frank had written his instructions don't open until summer vacation my uncle had sent me the greatest of all gifts three brand new Hardy book boys, um, Hardy boys books. Nothing will compare to the supreme luxury of lying in a cool barn on that first day of vacation and reading the Shore Road Mystery. In fact, would you close your eyes with me while I read this last sentence? I wanna read that one to you again. Nothing will ever compare to the supreme luxury of lying in a cool barn on the first day of vacation and reading the Shore Road Mystery. My misadventures with the fountain pen had led me exactly where I needed to be a day of rest. Whew. Man, I, this conjures up so much emotions in me. I know not only because of what God is doing in my own life, but man, for the last several days, couldn't I get that image of that young boy laying in this cool barn at the beginning of summer with three books he loved, with no pressure, no deadlines, all shame gone, all embarrassment from school gone all punishment and and feelings of disappointment and and um and and people being mad at him all gone and just nothing but but the optimism of a a great summer ahead and i just i I wanted to finish the service by praying that over so many of you oh do you realize how much jesus is his invitation means oh come to me you who are weary and heavy laden come out from the taskmasters come out from the pharaohs that are in your own heart that tell you work harder produce more you didn't reach the quota do you even realize this morning church that for many of you the quota you're attempting to reach isn't even something that God has asked you to do he didn't tell you that you had to look that way or feel that way or accomplish that much and you're working and working for a boss who will never be satisfied Oh, and God just wants to call you to this secure place of this barn. Let you lay down and know the rhythms of grace. Know the rhythms of, of a God who sits next to you and just says, I love you. Man, I care about you. And right now I don't have anything for you to do, but just to enjoy me and enjoy the life that I'm giving you. Oh, come and know. Know the sweet grace that I have for you. And from that, Go into your week with joy and, and, and excitement and do all the things that I've called you to do, but don't do them because you think you have to. I'm the God who's already provided and granted you rest. Oh, church, it's the prayer of God over your life. He wants to free you from those, those taskmasters and those slave drivers. God does not drive us. He leads us. But sometimes he, he, he has to make us lie down and green pastures and still waters. And today, Lord, if there are some of us, I'm sure there are that need to, God force it upon us. One way or not, teach us how to cease this summer. Teach us how to cease one day, a half a day, a week. Teach us how to cease during parts of our day. Teach us how to cease and be with you and cease and be with our families. Cease and just be with ourselves and know that we don't have to do anything or earn anything but to just be with you. Oh God. You invite us to come, Jesus. You invite us to come, and I pray that we would. In your name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. That's my, my image that I want to leave you with even as I go this summer. May you just enjoy, enjoy that place with Jesus. He is your Sabbath rest. He's so good. I look forward to seeing you again in September, maybe, maybe once in late Octo- August. I'll come and make an appearance. But I look forward to seeing you. I pray you have a wonderful summer and um, and uh, we'll see you at the end of the year. We've got great things going on this summer. Make sure you stay connected with all that's going on. God bless you.